If we want true friendship with God, we can't run away from the requirements that God, in kindness, in an effort to become our friend, to become our confidant, allows us to be pushed by the vicissitudes of mortality to the extremities of experience. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking In Good Faith today with Melissa Dalton Bradford. Melissa, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. You are an interesting person. Thank you. I will start off by saying that. I think those who are listening will think so, too. You have a BA in German and an MA in comparative literature, both from Brigham Young University. You also speak, read, and write fluent German, French, and Norwegian, have thrown in a bit of Mandarin, currently stirring Italian, Italian into the mix. Italian, but vero. <laughs> You're a founding member of a nonprofit group called Mormon Women for Ethical Government, founding member of a nonprofit, Their Story is Our Story, and we'll get to more of that. In fact, I'm Excellent. holding a beautiful book right here by me we'll talk about. Also an anthologized poet, a consultant on intercultural integration, which you'd have to be after all the places you've lived in over 25 years in Scandinavia, Asia, Central Europe. Welcome again after all of that. <laughs> that makes me tired just <laughs> hearing that. <laughs> when you have lived as many different places as you have, do you have to have a concept that is home rather than a place? Yes, that's very well put. You have to have something that is non locus centered. Mm -hmm. So we take our home with us. If you were to ask any of our children where home is for them, they say, home is the people I love. Home mm. is the people who love me. A great deal of that loving community actually dovetails with our faith community, where we have been welcomed everywhere we've lived. Now it's been 20 moves, 16 of which have been international. Whenever we move to these places, we know that there's a community waiting for us, not only to love us, but to expect that we love them, or at least that we serve in that community. So that's been a constant. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of religion, I think. We talk about the personal experience, but for many people, being part of that community is part of a foundation. Yeah, and I think the word religion describes that very well. Its roots come from the same, the same Latin word that we get the word ligament from. Mm. So we are rebound, our, the body of God, or in my case of Christ, is bound together in our relationships. One thought that I have written on extensively is that every relationship brings us to God. It's only through our human connectivity that we experience God and that we progress towards God. We don't do it as solo acts. It's always in a chorus. Mm. Full disclosure, we've known each other since we were but we children. Yes, I uh, had a crush on you when oh I think I was six. <laughs> You've clearly learned better about that. I but. have. <laughs> <laughs> we, our, our parents were at IU. In, Indiana University. In, yes. Mm -hmm. So I have a picture of you as a very young girl. But what I don't have is a picture of the inner life and your first connections to faith. When did you first make a connection, or, or did you have some understanding of God as a child? Well, I grew up in 
a religiously active home. So it was part of our family culture that we prayed. My parents happened to think they were German, although they came from little towns in Arizona and Utah. So we always prayed in German, which meant that I grew up thinking that God was German. (laughs) We prayed in German so that my parents would instill in us not only this other language, but also a sense of God as multilingual. Imagine that, a polyglot God. And that religion wasn't pinned in one geographic location. So I grew up in a home where we went to church. I went to Sunday school. I grew up with these tales of my forefathers being pioneers who were refugees for their faith. Some in my own genealogical tree were those that settled the Intermountain West. Mm. Their names are recorded in some of our holy writ. So I came from that culture and from that deep sense of this is who we are and this is what we do. The time that it became personal for me, actually, I was thinking about this in anticipation of my time with you, Steve, and I remember at the age of 12 in the fall, because I remember that the trees outside were losing their leaves, that I had a very vivid dream. And I can replay that dream for you frame for frame today. I'm now in my mid-50s. I can remember every detail of that dream. It helps that I shared that dream immediately with my parents, and I wrote it down. And I thought, this was my first sort of mystical experience. I had a dream where I saw this place where you and I are sitting now, this valley in the Intermountain West of the United States, and I saw it sort of in an apocalyptic stage. It's It was sort of an end-of-the-world scene, as strange as that might seem, sort of a John the Revelator mm-hmm. vision As I recall that dream, it was a warning about certain relationships that I had within my family, that I had a responsibility for my other siblings, sort of an end of the world thing. And I remember running up from my basement bedroom, taking the basement steps two at a time to get up to my parents to go into their room and say, I've just had this dream. I don't know what it means, but I've seen like fire and this lake that's out here, <laughs> turbulent and, and spouting waves. And there were tall buildings. At this time, there were no tall buildings in this valley. There were tall buildings, one that was sort of a gray-black mirrored vil- building, and clusters of people robed in white. I'm really sharing a lot here. I've never spoken about this publicly. Clusters of people clothed in white, kind of walking up through the sky towards the heavens. And I recognize that now as a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. And I am kind of a dreamer. I'm very pragmatic in many ways, but God speaks to me through dreams. And I remember that that was my first really significant dream. And your parents listened to you and and were validating. And they were validating. They Mm -hmm. said, ah, right. Well, in our worldview, people can have dreams. And those dreams can guide them, can warn them, can teach them, can comfort them, can help them make connections between their personal experience and the larger experience. And my parents listened to it and and then encouraged me to write it down. I was 12. And I wrote this thing down. And since then, I've had this journal of dreams that I've kept. This isn't happening every year, even, Steve. But at times of, at junctures in my life, of significant junctures, particularly those of crisis and pain, God has spoken to me 
in dreams. So when I look over other religious experiences, for instance, in my Christian faith, and I look through those stories of these ancients who were guided and taught by dreams. There are so many dreams so if you go through Old Testament. Yes, Old Testament, New Testament, yeah. other bodies of Scripture. This was a common experience for those who were seeking God. And I look at those texts, Joseph of Egypt, for instance, and I say to myself, well, I, I get it. I, I, I get how that <laughs> The is. trick is figuring out the interpretation thereof. Yeah, I've never had like <laughs> sheaves of corn and cattle. I haven't had those, but I've had other things that have been highly interpreted for me. And my closest group of friends with whom I share a spiritual bond usually come to me and say, Melissa, I've had this dream. Can you tell me what it means? <laughs> yeah, so those are my earliest personal experiences yeah. with the divine or with a, a, a greater truth or light that has spoken to me and guided me. Can you think of specific times when you thought that you'd had an answer to a specific prayer or asking for direction? And was that a moment of, I guess, confirmation, like, yes, yes you're really there? Yes. I think of many. I think of many. But one in particular that will be helpful for me to share with our listeners well, the reason I want to share it and can share it in a very concrete way is because, as a poet, I have written about these experiences mm. in verse. This was two years after we buried our eldest child, whom we lost to a tragic accident where he was trying to save someone else's life. That experience left us skinless. Mm. And skinlessness can make us porous enough that we receive these great spiritual signals, if we're listening for them. And, and this happened for me. It was two years after that event, we had moved again. We were living in <laughs> Munich, and we were anticipating an American holiday called Thanksgiving. I realized that I still wasn't able to fully get into that thanking mode. <laughs> I thought after all of this that we've lost, and after the pain that we're still carrying in our bones, how am I supposed to be thankful? And an added aspect to this that made it particularly hard is that in my faith, when a young man or a young woman is on the cusp of adulthood, they have the opportunity to consecrate 18 months or two years of their time to be a volunteer for their faith, to go out and serve, to share the good word, the good news, whatever. And that was about the age at which we lost our son. So it's one more thing that might have been. One more thing that might have been. And that was constantly on my mind. And I was surrounded in our, our faith community and our congregation by young men that were precisely the age that our son would have been. And they were here serving as these volunteers for our church. That was hard for me. And I didn't, I didn't want to resent their being there. They weren't responsible for the fact that my son was not. I was grateful for them. But there were a couple in particular that really reminded me of my son. And something nudged me saying, you need to celebrate. You need to do what you did all of those years before you lost your son and help these young people who are outside of their home country to feel gratitude and to feel home. Mm. I was struggling with this one night, and I went to my knees, as I often do before I went to sleep, and I pled with God, help me feel gratitude. Help me work through these feelings. And a very specific, clear, um, I want to say voice, but it wasn't a voice. It was just understanding said, read in your scriptures. As a habit for most of my life, I read sacred texts to start my day or to end my day, or sometimes at different points throughout the day. So it wasn't unusual that that message would come, read your scriptures. And I thought, 
well, I conversed with this source of knowledge, and I said, well, what scriptures? I'm reading right now in this book of scripture. Uh-huh. And the idea came to me, read in the Old Testament. <sighs> and I thought, where is there any story of thanksgiving in the Old Testament? And it's not my favorite at that time, not my favorite book of scripture. I'm very much a Gospel of John Christian. And the knowledge was, go to Samuel. And I was just scripturally astute enough to, to know, there are two Samuels. <laughs> <laughs> and the voice said, go to First Samuel. And I didn't know enough about the beginning of First Samuel to understand the story. I started reading from the beginning, and immediately I'm introduced to Hannah. And here's the story of this mother who begged for a child, received the child, and then offered up the child to the temple to be consecrated to God. And I felt thunder pass through my body as I sat all by myself on the edge of my bed with my scriptures, my Old Testament, open on my knees, and I read First Samuel. I knew that this was God putting his finger on my shoulder, saying, I'm here. I'm aware of you in this corner of the world, <laughs> this obscure in your bedroom. I'm aware of you. I'm aware of your context, your sorrow, and your sincere desire to do something good with this cataclysmic loss. I ended up writing a poem about this. If I could read that to please, you, I want to do. read to you the poem called Hannah, written Thanksgiving of 2009. She wept and fasted, prayed and wept sore, while the priest misread her longing, misunderstood her anguish, misjudged her. This strange woman of sorrowful, spilled-out spirit, the drunk, (laughs) clinging to the temple pillar, whispering to herself and to God, while vowing the vow. God heard that vow, remembered her, and the boy she bore She named Samuel, because I have asked him of the Lord. And she rejoiced with song while the vow warmed her milk. She praised while the vow pinched half-pitched dissonance in her hummed cradle tunes, closing her fingers round her child's tiny pillowed thigh. She felt the vow. She would not reverse the conception, she would not rescind the covenant, and caught betwixt boy and vow, she wept and fasted, prayed and wept that sore second gestation, the sworn months to have, then wean him, then lend him to God. Hours dissolved as did days, months dripping in milk drops that drizzled into streams of dire transience, filled out his flesh, readied him for the temple. Now she proffers him breast and breast again and again, knowing her eyes must memorize the secret rhythm of his fontanelle pulse. Here, velvet folds in the nape of his neck, And here, a fingernail, an eyelash. No, not yet, son. Do not turn your gaze. Do not strain your neck toward the imminent world. Here, my honeyed nipple. Here, remain. Her milk runs dry. His time runs out, pulling the child tight to her heart, her vow low on lips, 
She goes to gather three bullocks, one effa of flour, one bottle of wine, flesh, life, and blood, a decent offering, past worthy, and none other knows what is privately required. This one, her one, and her only child, true token of the intimate vow. Weeping, fasting, praying, and weeping sore, this strange woman, the one like a temple pillar, whispers into her child's ear the vow, breathes of his hair and arms stretched, offers the offspring to her high priest. With that, she turns and goes, and going, raises her eyes and voice to God in her soaring anthem of thanks. Hmm. You know, we hear of Abraham being called the friend of God. He would not withhold even his son. Right. And there's Hannah being another friend of God. Another friend. Not an easy thing always to be. (laughs) No, no. But if we want true friendship with God, we can't run away from the requirements that God, in kindness, in an effort to become our friend, to become our confidant so that we can have trust in him, allows us to be pushed by the vicissitudes of mortality to the extremities of experience. And it's there in the extremities, in the wilderness, in that skinless state where we encounter God. It's, it's the Jobian experience. It's Job. Because we are not enough to deal with it no. on our own. Right, right, exactly. And we wouldn't seek these things out on our own. I don't detect from you that you ever for a moment thought, what a lovely coincidence (laughs) that this popped into my head. No, no, no. No, I never thought it's a coincidence because I can feel it. Mm -hmm. I can feel poetic moments. I I can feel them. I can feel when it is not just happenstance. And maybe it's because I am looking for that connection. It could be because my own soul is primed and I'm constantly looking for... The grandeur of God, right? The Gerard Manley Hopkins who talks about pied beauty and the grandeur of God everywhere. And and maybe it's like Elizabeth Barrett Browning who says the whole world is charged with God, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that every common bush, I think, is her expression. Every common bush is a fire with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. But it's sacred ground, right? And everyone else is Any, picking blackberries. Anyone can do that. Yes. Anywhere. Yes, yes. So you've lived so many places, so perhaps, and in those places have not just stayed in a little enclave, but have actively sought out the language and the culture for you and your children so they would have a sense of belonging. Very much so. Um, I have the idea that people who are the most secure in their own faith are also the most open to the joy of other people experiencing their own faith without feeling challenged somehow by that, that they can celebrate that. I think that the deeper we enter into our faith, to the bedrock of our faith, the more clearly we see how that faith is connected with everyone else's spiritual experience. So if I'm walking through the streets of Indonesia, I can appreciate when I see a woman coming towards me dressed in beautiful Balinese, colorful batik fabrics wrapped around her beautiful brown limbs, and she's carrying her temple offering for that day, which is a stack of fruit and flowers that these women do every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I look at her and I think, I understand that because I know what it's like to take my own offering that looks 
so different from hers, yes. <laughs> to the temple. But right? it's the same impulse. Same impetus, same God, same creator, same needs, same feelings of excavation when we, when we lose things. And those are those broken edges upon which we are linked. Religion, we are linked to one another and connected to one another through those deep experiences. That we want to learn to see God in everything around us. And many people, I think, will. this is a common phrase, I'm closer to God when I'm in the mountains, when I'm on the lake, when I'm yeah. at the beach, when I'm in this quiet place that, I've, that I return to and have sort of made holy just by my returning to it. Sure. Which could even be just a corner of a room. Absolutely. And yet, we spoke at the beginning about the necessity of community. Yeah. How has your faith deepened because of being in a religious community? It requires something of me. Look how quickly I come back with that answer. I know immediately. It requires <laughs> something of me. These are not communities that I seek out. Here's an example. I don't go in congregation shop or preacher shop. I'm assigned, in a way, geographically to a congregation. And... This is an example. We lived in Paris for many years, and our apartment in the center of Paris looked right onto the stained glass windows of what's called the American Church of Paris. It's an ecumenical gathering place that's Mm. existed, one of the first ever not on American soil, on foreign soil. And it would have been really easy for me to take the 50 steps to walk across the street (laughs) and and go to that church. And it wouldn't require me to work in like the Sunday school where it's an aerobic experience and I leave church sweaty and tattered and and wiping my brow and uh, covered with sort of pasty fingerprints, right? It wouldn't. I could walk 50 steps across the street. I could sit in the back pew. I could get a wonderful sermon professionally presented, some great choir music, and and then I could walk away. But our congregation that I was geographically assigned to, that we were geographically assigned to, was on the northern lip of Paris that's called the Périphérique, so it's literally the peripheral edge of Paris, an Al-Qaeda cell that was known to the Paris underground was only a couple of blocks away. Just to give you an idea of what this was like, we had to lock the front doors of the church because we didn't know what elements would come in off the street and take things from our coat racks. This was a wildly diverse, seat-of-the-pants, scrappy, little teeny congregation, all in French. And my kids had to learn to function all in French. They were, for a while, the only young man, the only young woman there. We were just a, a couple of two or three families in that congregation that didn't have African or Middle Eastern roots. But I learned so much I needed those people. I needed their experience. I needed them to check my assumed worldview. I needed to have somebody pull out a drum in the middle of a Christmas program and start playing a hand drum to Il est né le divine enfance. He is, he is born the divine Christ child. I needed to have drums at church. So that I recognized that inclusion of that experience in my own faith. Another example that's even more African, our daughter lived in Tanzania for several months where she was a warden at a juvenile detention center as a volunteer. We went there at Christmas time, so I'm building on this Christmas theme. And we went to this teeny little congregation. I think the the arrival of our family doubled the size of the congregation that was 
Tanzanian, plus a service volunteer couple from the Intermountain West that was playing Western Christmas music on a calliope of a keyboard. And I sat there in this congregation at Christmas time in Africa, and I saw in front of me the leadership of this congregation, all three of these African men, but one in particular I will never forget. The sunlight was coming in this teeny window behind him in an otherwise pretty dimly lit room where we were all meeting. And as the sun came in, this lovely inky black brother in a white shirt and a tie, I could see coming through his earlobe, through this big hole in his earlobe, the sunlight. The sunlight was glinting through his earlobe. And I realized he must have been a Maasai elder before he joined this faith, because the Maasai, as a rite of passage, have these huge, I guess Americans call them gauges, they're these huge holes in their ears, and when you take out these earrings that they wear in these earlobes, then the earring hangs sometimes all the way down to the shoulder. And it was this epiphany for me, this, as I've described, this woman who comes from old roots in her Western faith. And again, this voice that I recognized said to me, this is your brother in Christ. I've never forgotten how that filled me with joy. And I thought, I am no more worthy of God's interest in my life, God's approval of my doings, than anyone else. That this man's own journey, so vastly different from my own, is known to God, guided by God, and upheld by God. Right here by my side, I have a book, Let Me Tell You My Story. Mm-hmm. Our, our time is very limited. I hate to even ask you to describe in a few minutes where this came from, but I have the idea that it's something about your faith and your connection with God that made you respond to the 2016 Syrian refugee crisis as you were in Germany mm-hmm. seeing refugees pour in, yeah. and they had crossed many countries even just to get there. Right. I just saw on Facebook you teaching German to try and help them, I guess, get a leg up, grab hold of the culture or a possible future. Just tell me about seeing that and what made you feel like I must act. I had to act because I, as I've described, I was a woman who knew what it meant to lose, in a certain manner of speaking, perpetually lose context, lose language, lose competence, lose friends, lose networks, etc., as we moved from country to country to country and to help my children get a leg up, as you Mm -hmm. said so well, in all of these new settings. I knew something about that. I'd written and I'd consulted on those things. I also knew something about loss. And I knew about loss in the middle of a major move, of course, in a context of complete and utter privilege. But I knew something about that. And so I immediately leaned into the stories and literally the faces and the hearts of these people showed up at a gym that was transformed overnight into a a first reception center for people straight off the trail, people who were still wearing their flip-flops and their robes and and, and carrying the scars of the trail, a trail that is like walking from Boston to Southern California, then up the West Coast and into Canada. That's how far a lot of these people came on foot. Yeah, we don't have a conception of that. We really don't, Steve. We really don't. And I didn't. I had to learn all of those things, too. I wanted to help them learn language because I know that that is the point of entrance into any culture. You you have to understand the language. And so this former language teacher on a university level and someone who knows how to entertain people for a while, I just showed up at their camps, camp after camp after camp, for 
two years pretty much nonstop just helping people. And in return, I learned about real global nomadism and (laughs) and real loss and real loss. It Mm. recontextualized my life. And I was so, so moved over and over and over again by their expressions of faith by their expressions of faith, when I asked, you know, when was the most frightening time for you when you were held at machine gun point, when you were trying to cross over this border in the Middle East, inevitably it would come to that Aegean Sea that they had to cross. And they said, you know, we're from landlocked countries. We had never been on water before. We knew that we were paying for our death, paying for a smuggler to get us mm-hmm. across this water. And person after person would say it was Allah. It was our God who saved us. And it is for our God that we will continue to claw our way forward and and raise our children. There's a quote from Harriet Beecher Stowe that connects my experience with these people. As we know, she was the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a seminal work that played into the anti-slavery, the abolition of movement. I came upon this quote when I was reflecting on why I have felt so deeply connected to people from a different culture, different religion, different language, obviously. Here's what Harriet Beecher Stowe said about her own experience with loss and why she then wrote this book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I have been the mother of seven children, the most beautiful and most loved of whom lies buried near my Cincinnati residence, Stowe writes. It was at his dying bed and at his grave that I learned what a poor slave mother may feel when her child is torn away from her. In those depths of sorrow which seemed to me immeasurable, it was my only prayer to God that such anguish might not be suffered in vain. There were circumstances about his death of such peculiar bitterness, of what seemed almost cruel suffering that I felt I could never be consoled for it, unless this crushing of my own heart might enable me to work out some great good to others, she goes on. I allude to this here because I have often felt that much that is in that book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, had its root in the awful scenes and the bitter sorrow of that summer. It has left now, I trust, no trace on my mind except a deep compassion for the sorrowful, especially for mothers who are separated from their children. And that is that binding edge. That is religion for me. I'm bound to these women whose mother tongue I don't speak. But when I look into their eyes and they talk to me about their God and I respond talking to them about my God, they talk to me about the loss of their beloved or beloveds. And I talk to them about my own losses. I know that they're not an other. These are my sisters. We are connected by our losses. We are connected by our devotion and our consecration to our God. And that, for me, is the whole essence of redemption. Hmm. We are redeemed through one another and our connections through our losses. You've connected with these people face-to-face from the refugee situation, and then here you are connecting over a century of time with Harry Beecher Stowe, who, mm-hmm. by the way, is both brilliant and bright. Yes. As I hear that. <laughs> Isn't Amazing. She? Yes. What a pleasure to speak with you. We could do a documentary. Today is just a, this is a little Polaroid. Good. Let's do a documentary. <laughs> of, I'll of, come of, back. Of what there is to discuss in, in a, a person's life. But I really appreciate you making time and speaking with me today in good faith. I've loved it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, Melissa Dalton-Bradford. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith.
This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. How does God speak to you? Or are you still wondering if He speaks to you? Do you find a bedrock connection with other people, either through things you've been through or through their and your faith? And how do you deal with it when something happens that's just too awful? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. Emily Paxman is an avid Netflix watcher, soccer fan, and cheese aficionado who studied Arabic in college and now works in healthcare IT consulting. Michael Phillips is a consultant who travels far too much, husband of a world-renowned choreographer and father of three. Charlie Mullins-Glenn can stand on her head and milk a cow. Not at the same time. She's a writer, teacher, wife, and the mother of five, grandmother of four. Lynn Christofferson has a tall husband, five children, and juggles her beloved grand buddies with writing and hiking. Linda Chaston loves terrible puns, delicious food, good music, high places, low tides, and the very existence of the container store. She's sustained by her faith, her family, and the people she's blessed to know and meet every day. That was fantastic. That was such a—I could listen to Melissa— all day and night and all day again. And she touched on so many important themes, I feel like, community, gratitude, seeking God, finding God, healing through creativity, the binding that comes through religion. I love the way that she explained that. But the thing that was most intriguing to me, I think, was when she touched on the idea that loss is often what leads us to God and also what binds us to each other. And then how she talked about how all of that leads to what she called redemption. As Melissa was talking about her earliest memories of her experience with the divine or with God, and I was sort of thinking about my own, and I and I recognized that my own sense, the first time I remember feeling God in my life and literally feeling these loving arms around me came from a place of loss as well. When I was five years old, I lost three important people, my beloved grandmother, my father, and my oldest brother within about a six-month period of time. And as you can imagine, that was a devastating time for our family. And I felt a lot of fear and insecurity during that time as well. And I remember one night I was in bed, I was supposed to be going to sleep, and I couldn't go to sleep, and I felt really, really fearful. It was starting to get dark, and I got up, and I couldn't find my mother in the house, and I went outside. We lived out in the country, and I found her hanging the clothes, hanging clothes on the clothesline, hanging out the laundry. And I told her that I was afraid, and I remember we had this talk she you know put down the clothes that she was hanging and she sort of took me into her arms and and she said you know you whenever you're afraid you can always 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 pray you can talk to god and so she sent me back in the house and i went in and i mean i always said my prayers i had been taught from the time i was a little girl from the time i could talk to say my prayers but this time it felt different and i remember praying and asking god to help me not feel so afraid and i remember to this day that distinct feeling of peace and again of being encircled in the arms of love that was a really profound experience for me one of the things that i find interesting as i listen to you tell that story charlie is 
you described having prayed and then felt this this peace and this confirmation. And one of the things I was very struck by as as Melissa spoke was how she experienced that, but it was through dreams. That was something that really I, I strongly identified with. Right. I also think of myself as a very pragmatic person, <clears throat> so I don't necessarily have amazing feelings that move me to tears. You know, I, I am moved by patterns in a spreadsheet, unfortunately. But I've always been very moved through my dreams. And it was curious to me that early on, we hear about her background with literature. When you think about what dreams are, that's a narrative. And throughout the interview, she references these authors and these books. And the thing I kept coming back to is the fact that all of this for her is about stories. And if we are connected by our losses, if those connections exist, we only discover those by telling our stories, by right. witnessing other stories. And that, for me, really helped me understand the value of the community. It's not just there to help you when you need a meal here or there or to babysit your kids, although those things are important. They're there for you to hear their stories and for you to share your stories with them. That really struck a powerful note with me. It's intriguing that so many of the stories that Melissa shares and the ones that we're referencing have to do with loss. Mm -hmm. And when we try to tie it back to faith and our connection to deity, I've always been intrigued by those who experience profound loss, that it can lead to a deeper faith. It can also lead to a hopelessness. It can drive someone quite the other direction. Right. And then I think it leads to that other question too. When everything's going really well, where's the role of faith? Where's the role of God in my life when, when everything's going well and it's it's not lost that connects me? But I think, Emily, your, your idea that we actually have to listen and hear one another's stories to be able to find the connection, when she talks about getting down to that bedrock of faith, I think when we strip things away, she talks about being skinless. And I, I think loss that. drives that, right? We get mm-hmm. to that skinless place where she talks about being porous enough for the faith to penetrate. So maybe it is in in good times and easy times that we aren't quite as receptive. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting that then that connection with deity, it can be comfort, it can be direction. I mean, we we can get moments in a dream or whatever it may be that might direct us to do something. But I like Melissa's stories that sometimes it's just, and to your story as well, Shirley, it's just the arms of love that embrace you. And that is your connection with deity at the moment Mm -hmm. that you need it. Well, I think that skinlessness, right, that porousness is a vulnerability that we, as human beings, I think we tend to avoid it. We don't want to be vulnerable. We want to protect ourselves. That's that's kind of human nature is to try to protect ourselves. But until we're willing to be vulnerable, whether it is to our family members or whether it's amid our community or whether it's with our God, until we're willing to look at ourselves honestly, to experience our emotions honestly, and not try to cloud them by our expectations or what we think we're supposed to be feeling. When we have those vulnerable moments, those are the most authentic moments, those are the most genuine moments. And we can't, I'm not sure that we can have a, a meaningful relationship with another person or with, with our deity. I, I'm not sure that we can have that if we're not willing to be that authentic, to be that porous. And I, I love the way she described that. You know, there is that discussion of of having a facade, mm-hmm. a false front. Mm-hmm. And I think, at least in the history of American Christianity, when we come down through kind of the the Puritans, one of the ways you showed that you were being favored by God was everything went well in your life and you had that stiff upper lip. It comes through the Boston Brahmins as well. Right. You make sure everything looks good. And I think many 
people religious say, the way I'm going to show that God's smiling upon me is all will be well. I will never reveal anything. And I think it's really interesting that right now in my world, in the business world, a woman named Brene Brown actually is one of the most well, of, of all the TED Talks that are out there, hers is one of the top three that's ever watched. And it's about vulnerability mm-hmm. as a business person that you become far more effective when you'll get rid of some of that facade. And I think some of our discussion here is, boy, that experience in my life ripped the facade away and <laughs> well, I became porous. <laughs> that, well, that's right. And so loss forces us into porousness, right? right? It forces us into that. And so when we're doing well, it's very easy to pretend Everything's great, and I don't need anything. But even when we're doing well, we have those vulnerable pieces, those parts. Nobody's got a perfect life, no matter what it looks like to anybody else. Well, inherent in that is accepting that, you know, regardless of whether your life is good or bad, accepting that life by its very nature is messy. That's why I love the description of that congregation that, Mm. you know, she described it as, you know, it's the seat of the pants. It was scrappy. And it was messy and chaotic, but that's what made it real and holy and beautiful. And I loved that description of the community, of just being able to say, we're all different, we're all messy, we're all making mistakes, but it is it is this chaos that connects us and makes us beautiful and connects us together. Isn't that what our homes are? Is that not? It's, it's beautiful chaos is what I call my house all the time. But it's that willingness to enjoy, to, to find the richness, the texture in all of that messiness. You know, one of the other connections she made that was really meaningful to me, she's connecting to others, but she also reaches back and she quotes people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, but she starts with this discussion of how her parents raised the family. And this connection, you hear people talk about the faith of their fathers and following in the footsteps of fathers and grandparents and what have you and kind of a legacy or a heritage of faith. And I hear that wherever I travel in the world. I spend a lot of time in the Middle East where families live together generationally. And I've been introduced to a lot of parents and grandparents, and the faith has flowed through that line. And somehow that connection, I feel like at the heart of what Melissa's talking about is the way we connect Mm-hmm. to the past, to each other, to ourselves, mm-hmm. and to, to deity. God. That's mm-hmm. right. And that, you know, her final line that we're all redeemed through one another <clears throat> defies a lot of people's idea that redemption comes through deity. No, she's saying in this messy, wonderful world, it comes through one another. I've been the queen of keeping up appearances for many decades of my life. And I felt like one of my sisters-in-law did me a great favor once by saying, and she didn't exactly look at me when she said it, we were in a group, but she was leaning my way and I think she meant me. But she said, we do ourselves a great disservice when we pretend that everything's perfect. I thought, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Are you talking to me? But it, it took me, I took those words to heart, but. I didn't know how to overcome that. And it was one of those times when I was stripped skinless, like Melissa said. That's what had to happen to me before I was willing to be imperfect. I mean, of course, I was imperfect all along, but before I could let anybody else get a glimpse into that imperfection, like maybe my family's not perfect, maybe my children aren't perfect, maybe I'm not even nearly as good as I thought I was. And it made all the difference. Yeah. Because you become unapproachable to others in your perfection. Right. How can I live up to Lynn? Lynn is perfect. We have nothing in common, right? <laughs> and when they see, when you're willing to be the real you, then there's that opportunity to make a connection in that spirit of connectedness. Exactly. I remember attending a lecture that was given by Louise Plummer, who's a, a writer. And she was talking about 
the importance of keeping journals or writing in our diaries. And she said, be sure that you write not just about the good stuff, but about the times you fail and the times you lost your temper and all of that stuff too. She said, it will be a great relief to your posterity. (laughs) And I've never (laughs) forgotten that. And I think that's so absolutely true. Another theme that um, Melissa sort of touched on that I was really intrigued by is just the whole question of how God speaks to us. And she talked about the dream that she had, and then she talked about this experience that she had where she was told directly to not just read the scriptures, but which book of scriptures to read. And I thought that was really interesting. And I'm just curious, how does God speak to you? So the the dream thing was so interesting to me because I had a, a similar experience where I've always been a very vivid dreamer. You know, every single day my coworkers say, well, what, what did you dream about last night? Because they're just waiting for what kind of nonsense my, my subconscious brought boiling to the surface. I remember being, it was not a post-apocalyptic dream, thank goodness, that seems a little too dark for my taste, but I have always been very uncomfortable with the idea of the afterlife, you know, and I know that not all religions have an afterlife, there's reincarnations, there's different ways of looking at that. But in my personal faith tradition, there's this, you die, and then you stretch on into eternity. And as the pragmatic person I am, I don't understand that. And I keep thinking to myself, well, what am I going to do? There's only so much Netflix I can watch for eternity. And I was so anxious before going to bed one night. And I had this dream where I was in the bottom of what I assume is the Grand Canyon. I've never been there, but it That's what I'm calling it to to myself. And uh, I was greeted by my grandmother who passed away when I was very young. And she said, oh, we're all waiting for you. And I thought, well, who, who are we? And we got into an elevator and went up. And I should mention I am terrified of elevators. I've been stuck 11 times in my life, so I don't feel this is unwarranted. But I had no fear in the elevator, so that's a sign something good is happening. And we got off the elevator, and there were my extended family, my aunts, my uncles, my siblings, my parents. And it was really great to see them. And then we moved up to the next layer. And eventually there were people that I recognized only from photographs. And then as we went farther and farther, they were just people. And as I woke up, I had this realization that I would never be bored with those people. I would always be okay. And I think if somebody had told me that logically while I was in my waking hours, I would have thought, well, no, I can think of plenty of times I've been talking to my dad and thought, okay, let's wrap it up. But in that moment, through that dream, in that state of mental skinlessness, when my consciousness isn't there, Mm. creating that perfect facade, Mm. there was such a touching experience. I found that I really identified with Melissa's experience because I still, every few days, I think about that dream and that has been such a comfort to me through the years. But Melissa doesn't stay on the dream alone as ways that uh, Diet is communicated with her and certainly this drive to read in certain scripture she talked about as a feeling, as a voice, and other as a feeling of comfort. I love that she covers quite a gamut of mm-hmm. ways that you communicate with God. And I have to come back to the dream just for a minute. I've known Melissa for about 30 years now. She's one of my dearest friends in the whole world. And I've never heard that dream before. She's told me about many other dreams that she had. And as she was telling me that, my brain was sort of reeling because I had a very similar dream at about the same age. And it was this apocalyptic dream again with this very desolate sort of, you know, destruction and buildings crumbled. And and I was filled with this sense of horror and fear. 
And then at one point, I noticed that people were looking up, and I looked up, and I saw this light, this bright light, and it descended. And I remember that the realization slowly dawned on me, and I thought, this is it. This is the second coming. Jesus Christ is returning to the earth. And I was filled with this sense of joy and light and awe, and then I woke up. But I've never forgotten that dream. It's something that has sort of informed the rest of my life, and it it gave me that great sense of holiness and sacredness and peace and love in the presence of God. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Melissa Dalton Bradford. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. You know, one thing that really stood out to me as she talked about the experience of reading in Samuel and knowing a little bit of the story of how she lost her son and, and having held that baby as a child myself was this idea that sometimes God asks for what means the most to us to cement the relationship or to put us in that faith position. And certainly powerful to think of a child, but my mind started going to, what are the other things that he asks of me that I hold close and dear that I don't want to give up, that are the things I need to get up to either get to that place of vulnerability or to show him that I want that relationship? That's a hard question for me. It is. I loved what she said. If we want true friendship with God, we cannot run away from the requirements. Then she went on to say that it's a kindness of him to require these things of Mm -hmm. us. And Mm -hmm. boy, that's hard to think of in those Mm -hmm. moments when he is doing the requiring. And yet, if we think about the people that we love, the friends that are the dearest friends, they're the friends that require something of us that are not necessarily that they have a list that we're supposed to follow, but but we feel from them that they that they have a an expectation. That's not the right word mm-hmm. for it. Well I think I'm there's saying isn't there it that, Ill. I, I think I'm there's that situation well. where we really end up loving those that we do something for. Well that's right. They're the ones who needed something of us. Well and then and then they they believe that we're better maybe than we think they are. They expect more they they believe in our ability to accomplish something they they know that we can. And I don't know, I, I just feel the same way about the way that God has this requirement of us. I think that the people that we love most They see more of us. Yeah, they see and we we allow them to see more of us, right? We make ourselves more bare. Yeah, and she also talked about how her religion requires something of her. And I think that's a really, really significant point. And I've been concerned (laughs) recently there have been a lot of studies because many, many churches are bleeding, particularly millennials. They're just not interested in organized religion anymore. And I just recently read a study, and it talked about how the requirements of religion were just too hard, that the younger people just didn't want to have to do those things. And that strikes me as tragic in many ways, because as Melissa put it, those requirements, whether of our religion or of our God or of our friends or of our family, that help us, that move us beyond what we could ever possibly do or become on our own. 
interestingly, there's other studies of the same populations that talk about their great desire to make a difference in the world and to serve each other. And I think this is where we run into a really interesting rub. If I feel like I'm serving organized religion, mm. that's very different than I feel like I'm serving others. When Melissa talks about going into the camps to teach German, she's not talking about going and doing something for her church or for organized religion. She's talking about going and doing something for her fellow men and women. Right. And I think sometimes we package the idea wrongly, and, and there have been a lot of studies about organized religion and how it's losing adherence, but yet there is a groundswell of support for taking care of one another, doing something mm -hmm. for one mm -hmm. another. And maybe there's, you know, when we think about our faith, what is our faith really grounded in? And this idea that we redeem ourselves through one another mm -hmm. is really mm -hmm. the fix. Well, at the very beginning, she talks about how she defined for her family what the concept of home was rather than home being a physical location. Right. It's not a place. It's the people you love, and it's the people that love you. And as you serve, you create home in each other. Right. And I thought that was so striking, especially considering the people that you referenced, Michael, that she was serving in camps who had physically been driven from their homes. So by sharing that connection with them, by teaching the language and hearing their stories and serving them, she was creating a space for home for them within herself and them a space for her to feel at home within them. And I found that very beautiful. Mm. Yes. The first time we took our family to Granada, Spain for a semester abroad, we took all five of our children with us. The oldest was 14, the youngest was five, and we pretended to do homeschool. It was all very entertaining. But, um, <laughs> it was a wonderful experience for all of us, but it was a striking experience for our family because as we're carrying suitcases, that's what we lived out of. We had a furnished apartment, sparsely furnished apartment, but we had very little. But our home was our home. And we did that, and then we went back to New Hampshire, and then we did it again a few years later with three of the kids and a few years later with the youngest. But as I've looked back over our family's history, I've been struck by the way that that experience cemented our family as what it was, right? right. Our family identity was cemented in those times when we weren't under the roof that we were used to being under because we were stripped, Right, We had to find the most fundamental reasons to be together, the most fundamental ways to communicate with each other. It was a tremendous experience, and that's what you're talking about. And this way you end up connecting with one another in a situation like that when the physical is stripped away. I work often in the Middle East, and some years ago I was working with the CEO of an Islamic bank. Mm -hmm. And Islamic banking is very different than Western banking. You can't charge interest. It follows Sharia law. I mean, you can imagine how different it is. People said to me, how, how did the two of you work together? He said, the first day we met, we sat down and we said, I love my family. I said to him, and he said, I love my family. And I said, I love my God. He said, I love my God. Hmm. said, that's enough, let's go. Yep. <laughs> and we yep. stripped down to those, the bedrocks of our faith, yeah. and everything that's worked right. beautifully afterwards. That's right. Well, acknowledging those, I mean, Lynn, you talked about being stripped bare and about your own journey with vulnerability. I love that your experiences in the Middle East, Michael, touch on this, what do we have in common? Because it almost feels like in order to be vulnerable, it's it feels so much safer psychologically when you come from a place of, I love my family. I love God. This is who I am. So you're starting from this place of understanding. So as you strip away those layers of the facade, you're still building this relationship on mutual trust and respect. I mean, I too have spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and my experience was very similar, where where we started with this place of, 
hey, this is what's important to me. This is who I am as a person. Then it was easy. At the time I was there studying language, it was easy to go in and make a fool of myself over and over and over again and allow them to see just the deficiency. So I loved that that idea of being stripped bare that you you mentioned, Lynn, with this idea of if we can start from that place of mutual understanding, that allows us to take that next step into vulnerability. Right. I've had a chance over the past year to work up at a refugee center up in Salt Lake just once a week, and I was afraid to do it at first. I don't speak Arabic like Emily. I don't, <laughs> I'm not a great communicator or people person. But what Melissa said here, Steve asked, what made you feel like you needed to help? And she said, you know, I had some language experience and I could entertain for a little while. But she <laughs> said, I just showed up at their camp. That's what I had to do the day I thought, I need to go outside my own church experience. I need to serve someone that's not in my congregation or in my neighborhood. I just showed up and said, I can stack toilet paper. And, and that's what they had me do. <laughs> and I would see these women come in, mostly women, most of them from the Middle East come in. And I thought, our religion is different. I don't speak your language. But I know that you need shampoo. Mm-hmm. And I can put in a bag for you, and you mm-hmm. smile beautifully at me when I hand it to you. And I felt like because I just showed up that they took my little ability to stack toilet paper, and it has blessed me. And I'm not doing that much. I'm helping a little bit, but it has blessed me just for showing up. I've been grateful for that. I just keep being reminded of the scripture that says true religion and undefiled mm-hmm. is to what is it? Can you help me to with visit this? this? To visit the fatherless the and the widows and, and their to need. care for the needy and yeah. the poor and to feed the poor. That's mm-hmm. right. And it, that has no framework of religion. That has no framework of rules. It just is what we do from the heart. Well, and right. I think I think there is a certain change of heart that she talks about when she says, you know, historically this idea of looking for God and seeing God everywhere potentially, it requires a change of heart on your part to start seeing you know, I think I have looked in the eyes of people before and seen the eyes of God. I know I've felt that and to see it elsewhere and to not have it be space specific, a place of religion or your home, it's where you are, all these things she's talking about, that seeing the face of God in one another and being redeemed together. Beautiful. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Emily, Michael, Charlie, Lynn, and Linda and especially to Melissa Dalton-Bradford for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to our podcast via iTunes. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in good faith.